Uh, greetings in the Master's name. Uh, let's turn to Psalm 90. The title of the message today is, O God, Our Help. This psalm is a familiar psalm. Um, my Bible has a title for the various psalms, and it says, God's Eternity and Man's Transitoriness, the Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Uh, and so it somewhat contrasts our, our fleeting time here on earth with um, God's eternity, God and his everlastingness. Psalm 90, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. I was reading that, I was thinking about what was going on a thousand years ago. Study world history and so on. Uh, it seems seems uh, pretty far back. Somebody was saying recently, thought it would be interesting when we study history, we have studied world history, if we had um, maybe divided it up into two parts where, or two courses where the one would be up to World War One. In fact, somebody was saying, I think a young person was saying that to an older person that, uh, you know, we when we study world history, we get up to about mid-1900s and then we stop and and uh, there's so much happened since then and so the idea was well maybe you know the first half the, the course could be up to World War One, and then second half could be from there to the present well uh, from World War One to the present it's just a, such a tiny slice of it everything has happened but here see it says a thousand years in eyesight, sight or but as yesterday that takes us back into the Middle Ages even before the Crusades. Number, uh, verse 5. Thou carriest them away as with the flood, they are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, 
the work of our hands establish thou yet. Um, I was, uh, my thoughts were stimulated along this line here about not quite a year ago, I guess. It was at, uh, well, maybe it was two years ago. Um, <clears throat> but the, um, it was a conservative Mennonite Teachers Institute, and I think it was their 50th year. And uh, Brother Harold Dean Miller started out something like this. The year was 1714. The English Queen Anne lay dying. She had been tolerant of dissenters. Who would succeed her and what would be the government policies toward those who were not in fellowship with the Church of England? Isaac Watts had reason to be concerned. He was born to Isaac Watts Sr. and his wife Sarah who were dissenters. That is, they did not give allegiance to the Anglican Church, the Church of England, which was a treasonous offense in those days. About the time that Isaac Jr. arrived prematurely, on July 17, 1674, the elder Watts was arrested. Sarah reportedly nursed little Isaac while seated on a stone outside the prison. And so we, uh, we don't have quite that kind of history um, to trouble us. The English history there um, just briefly, uh, you remember uh, Henry VIII uh, started the Anglican Church in England um, because he wanted to divorce his wife, and of course that wasn't allowed in the Catholic Church, so he just started his own church. That became the Church of England. Uh, the Tudors reigned in England from... Um, Henry VII, actually Henry VIII's father, up until Elizabeth I, um, she reigned for 45 years, and, and so that timetable went from the late 1400s to 1603. And in that time, you see, so Henry VIII, he started the Church of England, and uh, Protestant, so to speak, as, con as a, compared to Catholic, and and then uh, they had their ups and downs. Some of the rulers were pro-Catholic and some were pro-Protestant. And so after Henry VIII, his son Edward ruled for a little bit. And then uh, Mary, she was called Bloody Mary, came to the throne. And, and she was pro-Catholic. And so a lot of Protestant leaders were murdered, burned at the stake and so on. And then a Protestant ruler would come along. And so it was kind of back and forth. Um, and then, um, so Elizabeth I, she reigned from 1558 to 1603, and that was sort of the end of the Tudor dynasty, and then the Stuarts started, and uh, King James started in 1603, and of course that's the King James of the King James Bible. And uh, so, um, I think by that time, it was pretty well established Protestant-wise. But then you had this movement, see it was after the, well, the Reformation and so on, but you had this movement of um, those who didn't go along with the established church either, the, the uh, nonconformists or the dissenters, you had them in England. 
And, uh, and so there was that back and forth between um, how much they clamped down on the dissenters and how much they just kind of let them go. And, you know, for one little period there, actually, he wasn't considered, um, they call it, they have a different name for it, uh, when Oliver Cromwell, Cromwell ruled for about uh, 10 years in the middle of the 1600s. Um, <clears throat> but then, uh, uh, then William of Orange came in 1688, and he was very favorable to the Protestants, and they, and they passed a law called the Act of Settlement that, uh, that the king had to be a Protestant. And, uh, but, then, um, but, but then Queen Anne, I think she came along after William of Orange, and, and there, was, um, there was some uh, clamping down on the dissenters. There had been a law passed, um, well, let's see, how was it? There was a law passed putting some restrictions on the dissenters, uh, in the early 1700s, and then a few years later, there was, I, no, I guess that was about the 1714, uh, there was a more strict law passed, and so there was a lot of unrest. What's going to happen here? Um, and, and then Queen Anne died. And, um, and, that's, and, and that was the year 1714. That's what I read. And, and so now, uh, Isaac Watts is 40 years old. He was born in 1674. So here he is, he's 40 years old, and that's the year he wrote, Oh God, our help in ages past. And so, um, well, before we look at that song, I'll just read again <clears throat> what somebody wrote about uh, this time. Isaac writes that his father, who was a deacon at a dissenting church, uh, was persecuted in prison for nonconformity six months and was after that forced to leave his family and live privately for two years. Well, that was actually later when Isaac was about 10 years old. Uh, uh, Isaac Sr. Uh, kind of disappeared in London for two years so he wouldn't get caught and put back in prison. And then, and then things loosened up again and he came home. But anyway, when he was born, um, it's said that, you know, she did, uh, that was their first child and their oldest child, Isaac Jr., and that she, uh, she nursed him on the steps of the jail and she'd hold him up to the jail window so, so Isaac Sr. could see him. And so he had that kind of history in his mind, you see, and then so comes along here when he's 40 years old and not quite sure what's going to happen with... Uh, with the uh, approach to the dissenters. And, and so he turns to Psalm 90. He turns to Psalm 90 and he writes this, this song, Oh God, our help in ages past. So let's look at that. Uh, it's, um, it's number 64. Uh, no, it's not 64. Um, let's see, what is it here? 84, okay, thank you. And so comparing it with Psalm 90, and see, that's the way uh, most, of, I guess, a lot of Isaac Watts' psalms were based, songs, lyrics, were based on the psalms. And maybe more about that later. But, but here, uh, okay, the first verse of Psalm 90 says, Lord... Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. And so 
look at the first two verses. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. That's what he took off from the first verse, from the first verse of Psalm, of Psalm 90. Actually, uh, he wrote, Our God, our help, and John Wesley changed it to, O oh God, our help. Then uh, the second uh, verse in Psalm 90 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And so then the third verse of the song, Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God to endless years the same. That came out of Psalm 90, verse 2. And then... Uh, in Psalm 90, verses 3 and 4, we have, Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight, or but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. And so, um, there's a verse, okay, it was actually nine verses, I think, that he wrote, and there's six of them here in the, in the uh, Mennonite hymnal. Often in the hymnals, there's just five. Uh, but, uh, of the nine, uh, there's three that usually aren't included, and I guess for whatever reason, maybe uh, we don't usually have that many verses, and maybe they left out the ones they thought weren't quite as as um, good, I reckon. I don't know. Anyway, there's two verses that he wrote that goes along with Psalm 90, verses 3 and 4. Thy word commands our flesh to dust. Return, ye sons of men. All nations rose from earth at first and turned to earth again. And then we do have um, the other verse that goes with, the other verse of the song that goes with Psalm 93 and 4. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone. Short is the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. And then in Psalm 90 verses 5 and 6, Thou carriest them away as with the flood, they are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourishes and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. And here again there was a verse that's not usually included. But he wrote, uh, The busy tribes of flesh and blood with all their cares and fears are carried downward by the flood and lost in following years. And then the one that's in the hymnal here, the fifth verse, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. And actually, there was another in he had that went along with those two verses uh, in Psalm 90. Like flowery fields the nations stand, pleased with the morning light. The flowers beneath the mower's hand lie withering ere tis night. And then the last verse of the song uh, well, that eighth verse uh, of his song, how true this last verse is, the great stream of time rolls on, carrying with it myriads of human beings with all their cares and fears. And then we have these phrases in Psalm 90, uh, verses 9 to 14, phrases like, uh, we spend our years as a tale that is told, days of our years are threescore years and ten, by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is our strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Return, O Lord, who satisfies early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days.
in our weakness and frailty and amid all the changes and chances of this transitory life, even as a child turns to its parent in trouble and distress, so must we in our helplessness cast ourselves upon our God. And so then, the last verse, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be thou our guard while troubles last in our eternal home. Now, now you know, again, uh, things get changed over the years, and so I don't know which is the original wording. I see here in the hymnal it says, Be thou our guard while troubles last. Usually uh, it's given as, Be thou our guard while life shall last in our perpetual home. So anyway, the thought is that man's help is limited, but God, Jehovah, is everlasting in his help and strength. So that's that time in Isaac Watts' experience and how he turned to Psalm 90 and wrote that song. Um, there have always been troubled days, and there will always be troubled days. Um, if we, I don't know how you feel about our days now. Um, whether you feel like we're living in troubled days or not with our political situation and so on, or the world scene with all the unrest in the Middle East and so on. Um, it, it seems to me like perhaps even though we could get... Um, concerned about what might be or how things are. Um, the, the, the psalm sort of puts things in perspective and um, <clears throat> yeah, I think about times in the past when actually seems to me there have been more more uh, grounds for being uh, troubled and maybe even what we have. Um, there's a book coming out, forget the exact title, called The Loyalty Test. And uh, it's about the uh, Revolutionary War experience. I think it's a follow-up to that, uh, see, uh, what was that book about uh, the Burkholders coming to uh, America? Can't think of the title of that book right now. You know, Marie, um, CLP, it's been a CLP book for quite some time. Uh, but anyway, this one uh, is set in the time of the Revolutionary War, and I think it gives a little bit in there um, of some of their troubles. Not only were they having to figure out, well, they were, you know, they were neutral, and so, of course, they were, at least most of them, the Mennonites tried to be neutral, and uh, they were, therefore, at times accused of being Tories. But... Uh, in the middle of all that, um, one of the bishops, Martin Boehm, he, he left and he felt like the church wasn't lively enough and, and uh, he kind of made uh, connections with Philip Oderman. It was kind of beginning of the Methodist church eventually, I think, but there were, of course, offshoots of that and actually the uh, United 
the United Zion campground up there where the Berea meetings are held. It belongs to one of the groups that's an offshoot of that. So you had that, and then you had Christian Funk. He left and, and, uh, and started another group. You have all this going on while they're right there in the middle of all the troubles of the Revolutionary War. So, yeah, there's trouble sometimes. Or, and that's not near as troublesome as what, uh, what our Anabaptist forefathers experienced, like the Hutterites. Uh, they had their golden years, but then the Turkish, uh, the um, wars with the Turks, where they invaded uh, Central Europe there, and and uh, they carried off the Hutterite women as slaves and concubines and so on, and so just a lot of troublesome times. I'd like to look at some verses in um, Isaiah 10. This, uh, Isaiah 10, the verses I want to read is um, God talking about his use of Assyria and uh, Assyria, king of Assyria, of course, thinks he's calling the shots. And God is saying, uh, you're just an instrument in my hands. Isaiah 10, uh, verses 5 to, to 11 O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against the hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath when I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither does his heart think so, but is it in his heart to destroy and cut off nations not a few? For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Calno as Carchemish, is not Hamath as Arphad, is not Samaria as Damascus. As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Now, this is, that's the king of Assyria talking. Wherefore, it shall come to pass that when the Lord has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. Now again, the king of Assyria is speaking. For he saith, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. Now, I, I don't guess they do it nowadays like when I was a boy. We had chickens, and uh, actually they weren't very profitable in the late 50s, I don't think. Anyway, Dad quit with the chickens, but I still was old enough. I had to gather eggs uh, a few times, and you'd go in the nest, and use, there's, some of those old hens were just very uh, grouchy or protective or something, but, you know, they'd peck you when you go in to get their eggs. Well, see, the king of Assyria says when he gathered the riches from all the nations that he conquered, he said there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. I mean, he had, he, he, he was top dog. Well, then, this is what God says. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith, or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it, as if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up? or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood. Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire, 
And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of his fires, forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. And they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few, that a child may write them. That might be a reference to what happened later when, uh, when uh, Assyria uh, surrounded Jerusalem, remember, and Hezekiah prayed, and and uh, angel of the Lord slew the Syrians, and they went back to their home country. In, the, in verse 16, I notice, the Lord of hosts, and then verse 23, we have it again, the Lord God of hosts, Host, host, it's, he's the Lord, he's the God of a host. We, we use, sometimes we read over these things, you know, and we're just so used to reading it, we quite don't stop to think what it's saying. He's got, he's almighty God, he's got all these hosts at his command. Uh, the Lord of God of hosts in 23 and 24 says the Lord God of hosts and probably another time or so. Yeah, in verse 33, behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts shall lop the bow with terror. And the high ones of stature shall be hewn down. The Lord of hosts, that expression occurs over 50 times in the book of Isaiah. Uh, verse uh, chapter 11, a couple verses here. Well, this is talking about Christ coming. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. Um, we could go on and read more here in verse, in chapter 11. And uh, maybe I'll just point it out without reading it. But in chapter 11, verses um, 11 and 12, talking about the Lord recovering the remnant. And, it, and all the places it mentions there are Syria, Egypt, Pathras, Cush, Elam, Shiner, Hamath, and so on. And if you go to Acts 2, um, where it talks about all the people hearing, hearing, well, they were gathered there for Pentecost, and, and they all heard in their own language, and it tells the regions they were from, and it matches, it matches verse 11. That's kind of, kind of interesting. Well, then we go to chapter 12, and so we have, um, well, maybe I'll just read that. That's a salvation song. In that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, that anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation, and in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Crowd and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. And uh, just a few more verses showing God's greatness. Uh, chapter 14. Verses 24 to 27. 
this is where the Lord is speaking about his control and what he's going to do to Assyria. But it says, it's chapter 14, verse 24 to 27. The Lord of hosts, there it is again, the Lord of hosts, has sworn, saying, surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. Notice, notice these expressions. What God is saying, as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. As I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from the, off their shoulders. That's about Assyria. But the thought there is total as far as God being in control. And then 26 is the same. This is the purpose that is purposed under the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? That's... That's the same thought as what we have in Psalm 90, that God is God Almighty. He's in control. He's in control of history. He's in control of what's happening in our day, and, and we need that confidence. Uh, chapter 22. Now, this is interesting. This here is interesting because... To me, I think this is talking to the children of Israel. You know, and we don't really, um, in fact, in archaeology, it's a very interesting thing how Hezekiah made that tunnel. Uh, and, you know, you probably read about it, how they started from the two ends, and when they came together, they were there, you know, the engineering feet and so on, and you can actually walk through that tunnel nowadays. And, and some of this is... It's kind of referring to that, but it's talking about how Jerusalem tried to defend themselves against the siege, and uh, they tore down houses next to the wall to strengthen the wall and all this. And, and God is saying, you know, you're doing things in your own strength, and I wanted something else from you. Notice what he says in, uh, in Isaiah 22, 9 to, 9 to 14. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David, that they are many. And ye gather together the waters of the lower pool, and ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses have ye broken down to fortify the wall. Ye made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. And in that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping, and to mourning, and to baldness, and to girding with sackcloth, and behold joy and gladness, slaying oxen, and killing sheep, eating flesh, and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. And as revealed in mine ears by the Lord of hosts, surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die, saith the Lord God of hosts. Several times there you have the Lord God of hosts. But it's kind of interesting, you know. Uh, you can just picture it when they were wanting to strengthen the walls. They'd go number this house, this house, this house, this house, this house could be tore down to, to strengthen the wall. And so they were doing everything in their own strength. And, you know, we... <coughs> That's the way we do. We have to think. We have to try to figure out how to move forward in our time. And, you know, when we face difficulties, you know, how, do we get, how are we going to get through it? And there's nothing wrong with that. But God said to them that, you know, I was calling you to repentance. And you were saying, oh, uh, you know, doomsday's coming. We're just going to live it up today. And, and, uh, and God's saying, I, want, I was calling you to something different than that. 
Well, then, uh, verses, chapter 26, the first couple verses there, actually three and four is the ones I want. They're very familiar with us. Um, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. And again, that kind of points back to Psalm 90. And um, I, uh, I again want to um, I want to uh, give just a little more history here now um, about Isaac Watts and another incident in his life that is not as well known. Uh, again, reading from some information that I'd gotten. Born in Southampton on the 17th of July, 1674, the first of eight children, and actually I think there might have been nine, of Elizabeth Watt, of Isaac Watson and Elizabeth Taughton. And again, thinking about the, the, the um, not the baggage, but the background, uh, his, uh, Elizabeth, she was Huguenot. Uh, her, her history was Huguenot, and that was the French Protestants, and, and they, they had quite a persecution history too. And, of course, Isaac Watts Sr., he was a dissenter. Okay, the infant Isaac was nursed on the steps of the Southampton jail where his father was imprisoned as a dissenter. The father, re so <clears throat> he got, he, he wasn't in jail real long at that time. He got out and says, the father began tutoring his son in Latin when the boy was four. He was a precocious child, learning to read almost as soon as he could speak. So he was just a very, very gifted child. Um, he loved rhyme and verse. He was learning Latin by age four, Greek at nine, French, which he took up to converse with his refugee neighbors at 11, and, Hebrews at, and Hebrew at 13. Um, <clears throat> so by the time he was 13, he had four languages under his belt, two biblical languages. And um, he, uh, some, of the, some of the wealthier people in town uh, offered to send him to Oxford or Cambridge but they only accepted people from the Anglican Church, and he he would not give up his he he, he wouldn't um, give up his identification. I don't think I don't know if you would I, I don't know exactly what point you would say he made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, back then they were a little bit better on adult baptism than we are today, but um, uh, at least. Um, yeah, I guess there's various angles. I won't go into that. But but anyway, he went to this academy, this dissenter academy that was run by Thomas Rowe, which actually gave him a little bit more uh, freedom to study other subjects because at Cambridge and Oxford, they would have concentrated more on the uh, on the classics. But um, he, he studied, um, well, just a variety of subjects. And he, he actually wrote... We know him as a songwriter, but he wrote uh, on astronomy and psychology, and he wrote a book on logic that was used for decades. Um, so he went there when he was 16. He was there four years. He came back home. He spent a couple years at home, and that's when I think he started writing hymns. Y'all kind of know that story probably where he complained about the um, poor quality of the music they had or the lyrics they had. You see... Um, Calvin uh, said they sh that people should only sing psalms because, see, the whole thing was sola scriptura, uh, you know, just what the scripture teaches, what we're going to go by. Well, the Anabaptist is more sola Christ as we go by the life of Christ. But so 
so the Bible in the New Testament is psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But Calvin said, we're just going to sing psalms because that's what God gave us. And they tried to sing them. Uh, see, I don't know which one this was, but uh, it's often given as an example um, the kind of uh, quality that they had in their lyrics. Uh, you monsters of the bubbling deep, your master's praises spout up from the sands. You docklings peep and wag your tails about. Now that's from one of the Psalms, and that's the way they versified it. But uh, Isaac Watts thought it could, they could do better, and so he was complaining. And you know, his dad said, "Well, then you, if then, then do something about it." And so he wrote a song, and that 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 song that he wrote was, "Behold, the glories of the Lamb." when he was like 22 years old. And I think after that, for several years, he produced a new song every week for the church to sing, or lyrics, I'm not sure about the uh, tunes and so on. And then he, um, and then he went, um, I think he went somewhere close to London and um, maybe helped out in a school and um, started preaching maybe when he was about 24. And this happened when he was 32 in 1706. He was a very gifted poet and writer and there was this lady by the name of Elizabeth Singer who read some of his writings, his poetry. She also was an accomplished writer and poet. She had been born about two months after him. And uh, <clears throat> she was so taking up with his, um, the beauty of his writings. And so they corresponded. And uh, so when she finally met him, he proposed to her. And uh, I had reasons, too, because I guess she had expressed some um, friendliness in her letters. And this is uh, some of the things that it says about that. Isaac Watts was in frail health all his life. Actually, he had some sicknesses, and uh, so he had some uh, physical weaknesses. <clears throat> And standing only five feet tall with a large head and a long hooked nose, he was not a physically imposing figure. He proposed marriage to a young woman named Elizabeth Singer, but she turned him down saying, Mr. Watts, I only wish I could admire the casket, that is the jewelry box, as much as I admire the jewel. And so he ended up being single all his life. And it's kind of interesting. She married, she went on to marry a man that was 13 years her junior, which is nothing wrong with that. Um, and when I was first reading about this, it sounded like it was his old teacher at the academy, Thomas Rowe. But the more I looked into us, I was reading up on this a good bit yesterday, and I ran across one site where it said that this Thomas Rowe was actually the Thomas Rowe, the teacher's nephew, because that Thomas Rowe had a Bernie Rowe brother or something, and his son was Thomas Rowe. Anyway, so that made me feel a little bit better that 
that she hadn't married his teacher. But anyway, um, and then he only lived five years. And so she married him in 1710, and then he died in 1715, and so she was single the rest of her life. And, and Isaac Watts did not get bitter about that. In fact, she died before he did, and he published some of her writings for her. And he, he said this. Well, let me read here uh, again something, just a little bit of a repetition. His personal appearance was anything but lovely. He was only about five feet tall with yellowish skin. His head was disproportionately large for his frail body and boasted a large hooked nose and small gray eyes. Indeed, when he did meet Elizabeth Singer in person, she could not get past his looks. And when he offered marriage, she turned him down. If only she lamented, I could say that I admire the casket as much as I admire the jewel it contains. Disappointed, Watts contented himself to be her friend and remained unmarried for the rest of his life. He accepted that the divine hand of providence worked even in this rejection. Later, in writing to a friend, he said, I am persuaded that in a future state, we shall take a sweet review of those scenes of providence which have been involved in the thickest darkness and trace those footsteps of God when he walked with us through deepest waters. This will be a surprising delight to have those perplexing riddles laid open to the eyes of our souls and read the full meaning of them in set characters of wisdom and grace. And um, I'd like for us to look yet at one more song. Let me see which number it is here. In, um, if I can find it. Um, in your hymnal. I think it's uh, 333. And I give that uh, example from William Watts, Isaac Watts' life, um, because experiences come into our lives, not always of that nature, but things come into our lives that are difficult. And uh, to, to be able to rest in God's infinity, in uh, God's purposes. And see, there's a song that says something about God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour, something like that, I think it says. But actually, there are, I think that there are God's purposes sometimes we will never understand. Like Job had all his questions, and God never did answer his questions. Um, God basically told Job that the answer to his questions was, I am that I am. And that uh, he didn't really need to understand. And Job, he understood enough to say, that I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes, even though he was a perfect man and upright. So uh, this song here I wanted to look at, though, is 333. Come, ye disconsolate, where ye languish, come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here bring your wounded hearts, here tell your anguish, Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. 
joy of the desolate, light of the straying, hope of the penitent, fadeless and pure. Here speaks the Comforter, tenderly saying, Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal, cure. Here see the bread of life, see water flowing forth from the throne of God, pure from above. Come to the feast of love, come ever knowing, earth has no sorrow, but heaven can remove. Now that wasn't by Isaac Watts, but that was the attitude I think he took. Let's kneel for prayer. <clears throat>